All the men in my life have been two things, an epic and an epidemic, Ethel Waters. Chapter 8. Shooting began. Patsy Morris, checking in one afternoon as the crew broke for lunch, cautioned me. Remember, movies are like high school with a paycheck. The same juvenile behavior and more cliques than you can keep track of. However, there was a universal. I found there were an infinite number of ways to cop a feel. I recounted for Patsy, who didn't take off her sunglasses because of the tiny stitches in the creases of her eyes, all the variety I'd thus far discovered. The sound man's favorite maneuver was to sidle up, ask an imbecilic question about which take was being printed, and reach behind my back for an unwelcome ass-cupping. Cooper was more discreet. He'd pulled me aside on some filming pretense, and while our heads were bent together, he would casually pull me even closer and whisper lively and eccentric commentary on our co-workers in my ear. The more I maintained an unflappable facade, the more outrageous became the comments. Sometimes I ended up grabbing his arm as tight as I could to keep from cackling out loud. By far, the most innovative moves had come from the militaristic first assistant director. When I had approached him to see if I could get my stepson on his crew, he clamped a hand on my shoulder and said, I got a divorce last year. Best woman in the world. It was all my fault. He engulfed me in a bear hug with a full pelvic press. Anything I can do, he stated emphatically. I took that as a yes. Enjoy it while you can, quipped Patsy. What? Everyone, and by that I mean us women, has a shelf life. You start doing maintenance work around 38 every year, and by the time you're my age, even that doesn't make a difference anymore. Patsy tapped the rim of her sunglasses. Word to the wise, kitten. You're coming up on 30, eight, ten more years, tops. Patsy sighed. I should have married my surgeon. You're in a cheerful mood today. I speak from wisdom, sweet pea. Pure, Delphic wisdom. And that doesn't count for anything, I asked? Not in Hollywood. Of course, part of your allure right now comes from the fact that you're taken, so to speak. They can play all they want, and they'll never have to deliver. There's nothing so beguiling. I just love that word. Beguiling beguiling to a certain kind of man as an attractive young bride. I don't feel so young. Let me see. She took me by the chin and peered into my face. Hmm. You're lucky. I'd say 12 more years for you. Thanks. I felt not at all thrilled. Surgery. Shelf life. Expiration date. That sucked. You're welcome, cherub. Everything good with the pudding? asked Patsy. And all the little puddings, too, I hope, I replied, having got my stepson, Andrew, a job on set, notwithstanding the pelvic pressure. Andrew regarded me with the same reserve he had when he was a boy, but a job was a job, and now he was living in a rental with three other kids, and his mother was off his back. That deserved a little credit. I caught him in my peripheral vision throughout the day, on the edges of the set, helping herd extras, on the walkie-talkie parroting the commands of the assistant directors, 
and at the end of the day huddled together with the rest of his department, all dressed in tennis shoes, jeans, and t-shirts, before they were dispatched to hand out call sheets and chivvy the other departments offset and off the clock. On Fridays, I made a point of asking Andrew home for dinner with the family. He usually declined, but he would turn up now and then unannounced to play with his little brother on the weekends, or take him for a few hours to shoot hoops or see a movie. A few times, he appeared with his cohort from the old park days. Ryan hadn't gone far from home. He was a junior at UCLA. Sean and Patrick were in high school. As children, they had appeared brazenly feral, but teetering on the brink of manhood, they seemed a little noble. They were young enough to be accepting, not old enough to have turned into assholes. Jake worshipped Andrew, and every time I saw the tall boy with the small boy, it melted my heart. I wished it was in my capacity to make things different between them, but Andrew was busy, and he looked relatively happy. For me, the happiest time of day during the week was the 20 to 30 minutes I sat with Cooper and the editor as we watched dailies. They spoke. I took notes. But mostly I paid attention and learned to appreciate how light can affect your mood, how a camera move can take you on an emotional journey. And more than anything, I learned how to appreciate an actor's performance. Unlike the stage and its gestures directed to the back of the house, Movement on film was kept to a minimum. It really was all in the eyes. If a film actor had the knack, they barely needed to speak. If a performance was crap, it was because the eyes were empty, unexpressive. That's why Dave Taylor, my husband, was famous. He had expressive eyes. My favorite time of the week was when I saw an assemblage, a rough cut of all the work that had been shot up to that point. It wasn't color-corrected. The edits were basic. There was no scoring. Missing scenes were indicated with titles. But the gestation of the movie was fascinating. So it went on for four months, and then principal photography wrapped. The 150 people who met every day dispersed, and the rest was post. That meant even more intimate circumstances for Cooper Daniels and me. But it also meant weeks spent putting all the pieces together from editing to the final ad campaign, which is what I had been after all along. Although, it never was cool to come out as a neophyte and say that you wanted to be the final word, the producer. So, employing the same ruse as Cooper had, keeping my true aspirations under wraps, I kept telling everyone who would listen that I wanted to be an editor, when in fact I wanted to be the final word the one in control, the producer. It was only until much later that I realized there were even higher rungs to be climbed. But at least at that point, I had my foot on the ladder. It was May now. Andrew had left his shared rental and gone back to San Diego to resume his studies. Dave, after a period of lying fallow, being extremely discreet, announced he was going on a golfing trip to Scotland. Was it the presence of both his sons that had kept him in check? Or had he kept his interests quiet to impress me? Or had he been acting on the advice of his friends at the club? Or was he just getting too old? I wondered. Mr. Booker was scheduled to take a month's vacation. On his way to London, he dropped Jake off at my parents' house. 
They were going to take Jake to Cape Cod, just as they had taken me when I was a girl. In a way, I was envious, and in another way, I was excited. For a month, an entire month, I would be completely alone in my house. I would still be at Cooper Daniels' beck and call during the day, but at night, I could close my front door and be autonomous. One evening, when I was driving Cooper back and forth from an editing facility to a recording studio, where a small orchestra was laying down tracks, Cooper requested I stop the car and pull over at some Hungarian hole-in-the-wall restaurant in Burbank. Hey, said Cooper, I got to make a call. He picked up his cellular. It's kind of private. Run inside and get me a couple of slices of strudel. What kind? I said it's private. Yes, thank you. I heard that. What kind of strudel? Yes, thank you. Cooper fluttered his eyelashes. I knew it still irritated him that I deferred to him politely as my unquestionable boss. I was unperturbed. I'd like things clearly delineated, and Cooper had been trying to push my buttons for months. He had yet to find them. Hmm, the buttons, that is. They only make one kind, get me that, Cooper said with resignation. The restaurant had white lace curtains, and the waitstaff was stout and dressed in dirndls. The tables were full of older folks having the early bird special. I had two slices of apple strudel dusted with confectioner's sugar wrapped to go. If Cooper had seemed edgy when he sent me on the errand, he was visibly worse when I returned to the car. His jaw was clenched. His brow was furrowed. His eyes had gone stormy. He tapped the massive block of a mobile phone so hard against the window I was afraid the glass would break. So, he said, answer a question for me. I'll try. Take you, for example. You were sitting pretty on the top of the ladder, and now you're trying to climb your way down. Why is that? Why climb down? His eyes were fixed on my face. Because I'm afraid of heights? I shifted uncomfortably in my seat. Do you want to go now? I put my key in the ignition. No, wait. You, you can't answer a question with a question. You're married to a movie star, and now you want to be an editorial trainee? I inhaled. Yep. That doesn't make any sense. Cooper continued to prod. He was on the scent. It does to me. I started the car. Cooper reached over and switched off the ignition. You know what I think. I don't think this has anything to do with you wanting to be self-sufficient or your own person. I think you don't trust men. Never disagree. Okay, I don't trust men. Can we go now? I don't know. Are we done for the day? Cooper's hand was still over the key. He was still leaning over the armrest into my personal space. Yeah, I I'm pretty sure we're done. I had the sense that somehow I, I was tangled up in somebody else's conversation. Suddenly, Cooper looked extremely hurt. He lifted his hands as if in surrender and settled back into his side of the car. He turned his head away from me. What the fuck, Billy? Why do you do things like that? Alarmed, I got the distinct impression that his private phone call had been to a woman and that he was wounded, 
and I had just made everything worse. I didn't know how to make it better. My throat hurt. I restarted the car and put it in gear. Where are we going? asked Cooper. My heart was pounding. I consciously made my voice level. Where would you like to go? Wait, I, I'm sorry. That's answering a question with a question. Let's go wherever you want to go. The night is yours. The world's your oyster. Come on, help me out here. Where to? Don't you have to get back home? Not until later. Are we friends now? This felt a little better. Don't get all vulnerable on me, mister. We're definitely not friends. You're my boss. Where to? Cooper laughed. You put up with a lot of shit, Billy. I've had a lot of training. Well, in that department, I've had a lot of training. Let's drive up Mulholland and watch the sunset. Don't you want to get a drink? I want to watch the sunset. Yes, boss, we're watching the sunset. Cooper leaned back in his seat. He looked straight up as if he could see the sky through the car roof. Hey, Billy? Yes? Keep talking, will ya? Sometimes I just like to hear the sound of your stupid old voice, said Cooper. Do I detect the presence of Holden Caulfield? Knock three times if you're with us, Holden. Knock three times. Cooper cocked his head to the side, disconcerted, not wanting to be anywhere in his skin. I remembered what Mr. Booker had told me. It didn't matter what I said. All that mattered was my tone, and I began to tell Cooper's stories from my childhood. I told him how my parents would take me to Cape Cod on the 4th of July, and how I'd stand laughing and reaching toward the sky, totally dazzled when I saw the fireworks burst over the ocean. Did you know Virgil came up with the phrase time flies about 2,000 years ago? I asked. Cooper shook his head. It's from his poem, The Georgics. My favorite part goes like this. Off to when the wind is toward, the stars thou see. Huh. Well, let me try that again, mister. Off to when the wind is toward, the stars thou see from heaven shoot headlong, and through murky night, long trails of fire, white glistening in their wake. That's the part that reminds me of the fireworks. So every year, my parents would book a room at the Gingerbread Inn because the first year, when we'd arrived, I tried to take a bite out of the door jam because, after all, it was the Gingerbread Inn. I told him how time seemed to expand in the summer and become more real, and I told him I loved how my shoulders turned red and warm and how my feet were always caked with sand and how I loved beachcombing for shells, and I told him, how I loved Cape Cod. I told him I could picture mom and dad on the beach, teaching me to dive beneath the breakers. I would surface in smooth ocean waters to swim as long as they would let me, and that seemed like forever. Memory is its own kind of eternity, and in Cape Cod it will always be summer, and my parents, Cooper interrupted, his voice somehow softer and deeper. I've never had an assistant who quoted Virgil before. You've never had an assistant before. You said you hated the ocean. You said it stank. Turns out you're just as much of a bullshitter as I am, Billy. Maybe even worse than I am. I was astonished. 
Had Cooper been taking notice of what I said the entire time we'd been working together? I glanced up in the rear-view mirror to see if I could catch his reflection without turning my head. You're right. I always tell people I hate the ocean. But I don't really. I guess I don't. You guess? You're right. I love the ocean. I thought so. As it turns out, what Cooper wanted to see was not the sunset, but the city darken and then light. He wanted to see the basin deepen to a charcoal indigo and then glitter with points of white. He sat on the hood of my Mercedes station wagon. I sat next to him. We watched the sky darken and the horizon begin to glow. We shot the breeze. I pulled on a sweater. Cooper hunched his shoulders under his jacket. At a particular moment, Cooper reached inside his pocket, pulled out a velvet ring box, lifted a diamond ring in his fingers that glimmered even in the dark, turned it around once, and then flicked it away into the night and down the ravine. He might as well have dropped it into the center of the earth. Fuck! I exclaimed. Did you just say the F word? I stared at him, and he stared at me. You said you were never getting married. Looks like I'm not. I don't want to talk about it. You got any kids stashed away you want to tell me about? Shut up, Billy. Quote, I just like the sound of your stupid old voice. You know, that's the girl I hired that night. That night dancing with Shep. A foul-mouthed firecracker. Where have you been? For once, I didn't have an answer, polite or otherwise. We'll stick around, would ya? Cooper looked off into the distance. I was still stymied. Apparently, smiling and chirping hadn't been required, at least with Cooper. Stick around, he repeated. I need you. Okay, I said. There was the button, and that was the moment it got pushed in my mind. He'd never been sexually interested in me at all. He was only trying to get a rise out of me. Now that I knew he wasn't into me, but he needed me, I was sexually interested in him. The perversity of attraction. I wanted him to lean into me like he had on set. I wanted to tilt my head back and feel his hand on my neck where it met my spine. I wanted to feel his breath on my cheek, his stubble against my skin. I wanted to kiss him. The only thing that acted as a governor on my impulses was the thought that if I touched Cooper, I would be as bad as Dave. Impure in thought and deed. Well, I'd better take you home now. Cool, said Cooper, sliding off the hood of my car. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.